If you would, let's turn a second time to 1 Samuel 20. 1 Samuel 20. I'm going to read to you the first nine verses. That was in my Bible reading this morning, what he just read. (laughs) I didn't plan on that. It's wonderful how that works. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? He said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I ought to sit down to eat with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me, to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it is the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. If he says it is good, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself. For why then? Should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, Far from it, far far be it from you. For if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it. The word of the Lord. You know, we turn to uh, 1 Samuel 20. I've been thinking about this sermon I think I'm going to use this sermon and use it for a wedding. <laughs> um, you'll see why in a minute. But it's it's not about being married necessarily, but it's about covenants. First Samuel chapter 20. What do we see David doing? First verse one, he's fleeing from Saul. He says in verse three, "There's hardly a step between me and death." Chapter 17, David kills Goliath. Chapter 18, King Saul is jealous with David's popularity and he hopes David gets killed in battle. That's his secret desire. Man, I don't know why I love this saying it this way, but I guess it's, I keep seeing it on all these feeds. Then chapter 19, this is where Saul says the silent part out loud. Isn't that something we hear every single day? He said the silent part out loud. He says to all his men in verse 1, I want David put to death. Well, then in chapter 19, after he says that, David is delivered by God through a whole series of deliverances, sometimes by means and sometimes apart from means. David is delivered by God through Jonathan's prudent mediation. Remember, Jonathan spoke some very carefully chosen words and put Saul off for a while. And then David escapes by his own quick reaction when Saul picks the spear up and throws it at him. 
And then again, he's saved by his own wife, Michael, as she intervenes and saves David from her father's secret service agents. And then there's a there's the time where God uh, delivers David apart from means. Remember how Saul sends his army rangers to go get David, to capture him and kill David. He sends them out there and every time, three different times, three different groups goes go out there to get David at Nioth. And the Spirit of God comes on them so powerfully, causes them all to sit down and they begin to praise God and prophesy. Well, then Saul, he comes along and he says, I got to do it myself. And so he goes there and guess what happens to him? God incapacitates him by the power of his spirit. He's made to take off his royal garments. He sits down in the street and the Bible says he sits there naked. Now, he's not actually without clothes. He's got his underwear on. He's sitting in the street with his underwear on, praising God and prophesying, doing exactly what he does not want to do. God saved David apart from means and by means. And that brings us to verse 1 where David is fleeing from Nioth. And where do you go? Here's the thing. Here's the marriage part. Where do you go when you're just a step between yourself and death? Well, David goes to Jonathan. Not that they're going to get married. But there's a covenant here. There's a covenant between two men. Why do you go to Jonathan? Covenant. There's a covenant between these two men. David kills Goliath, chapter 17. Chapter 18, Jonathan sees that. Jonathan goes, that's the kind of guy that I want to be my friend. He takes off his royal garment and gives it to David. He gives him his armor. He gives him his weapons. And he makes a covenant to David. And he makes David swear out the covenant with him. And basically they're both saying, I've got your back to to the death. Chapter 20 is all about covenant. Covenant promises and vows and oaths. Verse 8, David refers to the covenant. Verses 12 through 17, Jonathan refers to the covenant. And then he extends the covenant to all the members of their descendants. Verse 23, Jonathan refers to the Lord being the witness of their covenant. Verses 30 and 31, Saul is angry, full of fury over the covenant because he sees Jonathan loving David. And then verse 42, this is what Jonathan says. Go in safety, David, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. This is the security of the covenant. Think about that tonight. So we begin with David is on his way to see Jonathan. Well, remember, where's Saul? Saul's still sitting in the road. He's incapacitated by God's Spirit. And Jonathan it finds David knocking at his door. And this is what David says to Jonathan. What have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he's seeking my life? Dave, David knows exactly what's going on. Jonathan, he's sort of not in the loop at this point. He said, far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is just simply not true. And so we might ask ourselves, Jonathan, where have you been? And Jonathan might say back to us, he might say, well, listen, I did intervene. And I have persuaded my father not to kill David. And you have to remember, he does have this spirit that torments him. And every now and then he does get the spear in his hand. He does act 
uh, incorrectly and wrong, but he doesn't desire to kill you. And David goes, no, 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 listen, we've got to get this straightened out. Look at verse 3. He swears out an oath. He says, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. And when he said that, this is what Jonathan said. Whatever you say, I will do. Now that's a covenant. I will do, I will be the one to fulfill the covenant. And so David comes up with a plan so that they both know Saul's intention. And here's the plan. The next day there's the new moon festival and David will be expected to be at the king's house for this festival. David's part of the king's entourage, if you will. You know how you see, how many vehicles are with the president? You know, five cars. But there's an entourage, and when, when the king has a meal, it's a big deal, and David's going to be there. He's the harp player. He's the general. And so he's expected to be there, but here's the deal with Saul. He's just such a Saul. Y'all with me? You can't win with Saul. If he shows up, he dies. If he doesn't show up, Saul goes, he's snubbing me. <laughs> you don't win with Saul. And so David knows this, and he says, here's the plan. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to go out and I'm going to hide in a field. And I want you to tell your father when he misses me, and he will, he'll feel snubbed. He's going to miss me. He's going to say, where's David? You say, you've given me permission to go back home for a feast with my family, for a, a sacrifice. And if your father says, very well, all is good, we'll know that he's not bent on killing me. But if he gets angry, if he loses his temper, you and I will both know that he's committed to harm. That's the plan. Now, I love, to, I love to read what the commentators say. Some commentators go absolutely ballistic against David and against Jonathan. Both of them are deceptive. Both of them are lying. Oh, that's terrible. And then others excuse David and Jonathan for saying this because God is at war with Saul and they excuse and justify the lying and the deception. And those are things we can discuss at some other time. I want to discuss three things tonight with you. I want to give you three points. Number one, David is weak at this point. Number two, David is young or inexperienced. And in David's weakness and inexperience, he goes and flees to the, to the covenant. He goes to the security of the covenant. And I want us to look at these three points tonight and relate, and relate them back to ourselves. So first thing, what do we see that's very clear? David is weak. There's no doubt about it. David's weak. His faith is weak. And wouldn't you be weak if the king was coming after you and you've done nothing but try to please the man? Don't you think you would feel a little weak? This man has gone up against a giant and won. This man is the savior of Israel. This man is the one that the women sing about. He plays the harp for Saul. He goes out for king, for country, and in the name of the Lord, he wins the Lord's battles for the Lord's people. And yet now... We find David is weak. The second thing I want you to note is David is younger. This is not the 50-year-old David. This is the 20-year-old David. This is not the David who wrote Psalm 63 30 years down the road, who's weathered spiritual and physical storms. This is not the David who knows the grace and the power and the might and the love of God and the forgiveness of God. This is a young David, an inexperienced David. This is a David... You know, folks, this is a David who wants the king to give him what he should give him. And that's love. And he's not. This is a David who desires the king's smile. 
who's having to say, what have I done? <laughs> he should be able to get the king's smile, but he doesn't get it. I tell you what, even when you're 62, you, you, you want people to like you. And you have to be a little older sometimes to understand not everybody will and you're going to be okay. Right? Isn't that right? Don't we all have to think this? Oh God, help me to live this life when people don't like me. I try to put myself in David's shoes at this point. I want you to think about somebody who's gifted. I want you to think about somebody who's a gifted in some form or fashion. Let's just say maybe in sports, has gifts, can do great things on the the sports field, maybe play baseball, play football. And he's really doing well, but there's just one problem. He's at odds with the coach. You ever been at odds with the coach? Mm. Coach and this guy don't get along. This young man's got all this potential. He can run fast. He can catch the ball well. He can pitch the ball well. And he's sitting around going, what have I done? Why am I at odds with the coach? This makes people feel down. This makes people feel weak. More than anything, a young man with all these potentials would love the coach to believe in him. That's one of the things... That when I used to do personal training, I'd read all these manuals. And one of the things that the coach was required to do is you better make sure these kids know you believe in them. Or they're not going to perform well. David would have done anything to get this guy's smile. In the ninth ninth grade, I was injured at the very beginning of the track season. And... um, I was injured bad enough that they told me to go lay down for nine days, stay at home. My dad would come home after his school, take me, put me in the bathtub, get me out of the bathtub. We did this all week long. And um, and so when uh, track season came to the end of the track season, the, I'm still limping around, just got off of crutches. And the coach said, why don't you throw the discus? I know you like the sprinting thing is your deal. I, that was my thing. This was my sport. I lived for this. I didn't get to run, but I could throw the discus. So I threw the discus in the last second to the last meet, and I got sixth place. That's one point. The next meet, I got seventh place. That's no points. And I will never forget this coach's disapproval. I would have done anything for this approval. It's horrible when you want approval. And you don't get it. David should have been able to go to Saul for approval. For a smile. For love. But he wouldn't get it from this man. This was David's desire. I'm going to show it to you in 1 Samuel 24, 8-11. Let me just read this to you. David is fleeing from Saul. He's in a cave. He's had an opportunity to kill Saul. He cuts off only part of his robe. And this is what he says. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you into my hand in this cave. And some said to me, Kill kill him. But my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father, see, indeed, 
See the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and that I have not sinned against you, though you are seeking, are, are lying in wait for my life. This is what David, David's loyal. David's David's loving. David is submitted. David is not going to touch this man. And yet Saul will put him to death. Are you in a position of authority where people are under your care and they should be able to flee to you for encouragement and it's just simply not to be found? Think about that. Now we don't, we, I hope nobody in here, I'm looking at everybody, I hope nobody in here will say that. In my notes, I put it like this. Are you just such a Saul? Don't be a Saul. Don't be somebody that nobody can run to in this church and not gain approval, not gain help. I'm not saying you have to approve of their behavior, their actions. I'm just saying they may need you to help them. Are you there to be, like we read in Psalm 18, a shelter in the time of a storm? Are we so wrapped up in our own selves that we don't have time to show love and acceptance to others? Listen, this is devastating to David and all of us Davids. You with me? We all need somebody to love us and care for us and be there for us. There's a story of an old preacher who finished preaching and got in a train. He started going down back home. And an old drunk came up to him with his bottle and his bag, you know, the little brown paper bag like they do. And he said, sir, would you like some of my wine? And the preacher says, no, thank you. And then someone came up to the preacher afterwards and abrasively said, what do you think about that man offering you that liquor? <laughs> and this is what the preacher said. He was kind enough to offer me what he had. See, there's a difference there. There's caustic and there's kind. There's critical and there's complimentary. One man sees it different than the other. And you and I, we need to see folks and love folks and be helpful towards people and have a disposition that's kind and helpful. And this thing we see in David, he's weak. We see David's young or inexperienced. And this teaches us, he's teaching us in his weakness and in his inexperienced moment, he's teaching us to flee to the security of the covenant. He doesn't have the love and he doesn't have the care from the king, but he does have love and he does have security from somewhere. And it's found in the covenant. Verse 8, Therefore he says to Jonathan, Kindly deal with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. You have to help me. <laughs> He's appealing to the covenant. Jonathan, you're the one who brought me into this. Does it mean anything? Do all these words that we that you said and we said back in chapter 18, back in those days, do these words mean anything? Are you really a refuge? Are you really going to be there for me when there's one step between me and death? David reminds him this, this is his idea. And he's expecting from Jonathan more than words. 
The word here, deal kindly, is the word hesed. We all have heard that. Haven't we all heard that word? That's that covenant word for love. Loving kindness. David, I want not just vows and words. I want action. I want reliable action in my behalf. I need you to step up to the plate and take care of me. And it's no problem for David. You know, I mean for Jonathan. What's that word everybody says at Chick-fil-A? He says, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure to keep this covenant with you. I want you to think about the covenant. David's teaching us that love and covenant go together. When you covenant with somebody, you are determining to love that person. You are determining to make promises and that you will fulfill or meet all of those promises. And what does that mean to me? If you say, I will make a promise with you, I will covenant with you, it means that I can come to you. It means I can come to you and tell you when I'm dirty, when I'm down, when I'm just desperate, when I feel like getting in that hole we were talking about of depression and discouragement over here, that's right over there, that's that, that hole is right there all the time. And so I need somebody to get me out of that hole. When you and I are weak and when you and I are down and distressed, and one step is between us and death, we need to go to people with whom we've made a covenant now, I could hear somebody say, what are you talking about, covenant? Do you, how, how often do you hear that word, covenant, used outside the walls of, of, a, of a church? Have you ever heard it outside the walls of a church? Probably not. But you know, we're doing it all the time. We sign them when we do, when we do the paperwork for a house. <laughs> That's a covenant. Just ask the bank. So we do this all the time, even though somebody might say, well, we don't use that word very often, or that's old-fashioned. We do it all the time. With whom have you made a covenant? Let's just get, let's just get real with, with our church. Let's get real with our church. Every communicant member has made a covenant to each other in this place. And so these people, they come up, and this morning we quoted almost all the, the vows for membership. They make these vows. And then the preacher looks at everybody and says, these Folks have been received by Jesus Christ and now you have to receive them like Jesus does. Are those just words that we say? Are those just things we nod to? Or do we really mean these words when we say, I will be there for these new folks, these members in my church? Moms and dads, although we make covenants, we stand up in front of the congregation and although our children, as we read, are conceived and born in sin, we understand they're subject to condemnation, yet they're holy to the Lord. And by virtue of the covenant of grace, what do we do? We say we're going to put water on them, their heads. And we say that we understand that they're, they're lost and that they need Jesus Christ. And we're going to teach them the nurturing of the Lord. We're going to teach them the truth of God. We're going to try to give to them this precious faith that we have in our own hearts. We say, we vow before the congregation that we're going to pray for them and with them and we're going to be examples to them of how to pray. Are we fulfilling our vows? Or are these just so many words? Husbands and wives, we make vows before God and before so many witnesses, right? We have rings on our fingers. I can't even get my ring off. I think I'd have to get some, what you know, some... Vaseline or something. Get my ring off. My ring's on there pretty good. I, I can't get a divorce. It's on there pretty good. Now, you see, we make these vows before God and witnesses. 
And we put rings on our fingers as tokens and pledge of, of undying love and faithfulness. We say things like, I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband or wife in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. We say, this ring I give to you as a token and a pledge of constant faith and abiding love. Are you keeping the covenant? Are you keeping your covenant with your husband, with your wife? I I like to put it this, this way. Does your spouse feel the love? Does your spouse feel like that he, she can come to you and find a place to to hide, find a place of refuge, find a a place to appeal for uh, help? Or are they just so many words? Vows are very important to God. We make these vows before God. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 5, Verses 4 through 6, he says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? God holds us accountable to all our words. And it would be better for us not to vow than to vow and not keep our vows. Ultimately, let's come to the end of our sermon. Exodus 34, 6 tells us about a God who's a covenant-making God because He can't help Himself. God tells us about a God who part of His nature is to love and make covenants with His people. This is who our God is. He says, I am a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God cuts covenants, He makes covenants, and He's going to be there and keep those covenants. This God of love declares His love to you. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates. The word demonstrates is almost like, it's like come to this theater And see the love down there at the cross. There is the demonstration of this particular, peculiar love for you. And God says, you can have all that I am. All you have to do is rest in my son. There it is. Come to Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Find Jesus as your safe place and know my love. And so David finds love in the covenant with Jonathan. David is appealing to love from Jonathan, and Jonathan is there to say, my pleasure. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray. And He speaks of covenant love of the Father. And He says this, He says, I want you to think about a friend of yours who comes to your house at midnight. You are are in bed with your kids, and your friend comes and he starts banging on the door. And he says, listen, I've got company. It's 12 o'clock midnight. I've got company. Um, People have been traveling through the evening. Stay out of the sun. Through the evening, they're knocked on the door. I don't have any bread to give them, and I need you to help me. Would you please get up and give me three loaves of bread? And the man on the inside, you and I on the inside, we say, don't bother me. This is what Jesus said. Don't bother me. The door's already locked. My children and I are in bed. Don't bother me. But this friend knows you and he's going to try you. He's going to try the covenant. So he just keeps banging on the door because you're in covenant with me. You know, you guys, this guy's in covenant with me. And he's just going to keep pushing. 
He's going to push me and push me and push me. You know why? Because He knows I'm going to fulfill that covenant. He knows it's impossible for me to break the covenant. He knows that I'm going to get up and give Him the bread that He needs, even if I don't have the right motive. I might do it from the wrong motive, but I'm going to give Him what He needs because, well, He's my friend. Jesus goes on and gives another illustration about an imperfect father. Think about us fathers. He says we are sinful, imperfect fathers. But we sinful, imperfect fathers find it impossible not to meet the needs of our children. Our child comes to us and says, I want a fish. We don't give them a serpent. Child comes to us and says, I want an egg. We don't give them, I mean, an egg. We don't give them a scorpion. In just the same way that we find it impossible to help our children, God the Father finds it impossible to help those who come to Him. The, the parables are all about asking. The parables, parables are all about praying and seeking and knocking. The friend knocks until you come to the door and you give him what he needs. The child asks the father for what he or she wants and they get what they need. David comes and knocks on the door of Jonathan and he stays there until he gets what he needs. And God the Father will give us the Holy Spirit when we ask Him for the Holy Spirit. I don't know what you're up against. I don't know if there's one step away from you and death. I don't know if you're struggling at home or work, but I do know this. We have a God that you can appeal to for help. We have a God that you can come to for grace. And he tells us it's impossible for him not to respond when we ask. If you're a stranger to covenant love, we have it all spelled out for us. And the promise is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is there. The refuge is there. And all you have to do is ask. God says it's impossible for me not to give you what you need. So the question is, have we asked? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship. Thank you for this time to be reminded of how much you love us and the covenant love we find in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we might be those who do ask and seek and knock. And we pray, Father, that we might constantly be finding you opening the door and pouring out your love upon us in your son, Jesus. Take us home tonight. We pray for your power of your Holy Spirit this week. We pray that we might rest easy in Jesus Christ, even in the midst of many trials and tribulations. And we pray that you might be glorified in all our thoughts, in all our words, in all our deeds, and in our homes and at work. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.